Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We're excited to be with you today. My name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm the pastor here at Covenant Church, and um, we are having a blast walking with Jesus. And so instead of giving you a big, long opening about how we're walking with Jesus, um, I'm just going to invite you to put your walking shoes back on, and we're going to just start walking with Jesus again. We've been doing this for a while, and we're going to keep on doing it. And so what we're going to do is pick up right where we left off in uh, Luke chapter 12, and we'll put it on the screen for you. Uh, you can read along in your Bible if you have that with you, and we'll just pick up in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. The Bible says this, someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me to be a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, those around him, he said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. And that light bulb goes on, ping. He says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, and then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. What an interesting kind of little passage again. Like we've been walking with Jesus week to week, and we keep seeing this. It keeps happening. Here we go again, it kind of feels like. A man asks Jesus a question, and Jesus responds first with a question and then with a story. He doesn't really address the question. He just tells a story. And we've said these stories, these parables are side door stories that, uh, that each of our hearts, Jesus knows this walking with people, each of our hearts, our hearts are, are well-defended territory. We're defensive and we have ways to keep our hearts from being uh, kind of snuck into. And so what Jesus does with parables is he goes in the side door. The front door is heavily guarded, but the side door is usually unlocked. And so he uses parables to sneak in the side door. So let's lean into this Jesus story and see what it's all about. And I think what we're going to find out is, is the man takes the right angle with Jesus, but he has the wrong motive. The right angle, wrong motive. So there's this man in the crowd, and someone will say, how big was the crowd? And it's a good question. And the answer to that is very clear. I have no idea. Okay, I don't know. 20, 40, 100, 200, 1,000. It could have been any of those. What we know is this man is close enough to Jesus in the crowd that he can ask a question and Jesus hears him. He asks the question and Jesus hears him and can respond to him. They can have a conversation. So whatever the size of the crowd, this man is close enough to the inner circle walking with Jesus that he can ask the question. Jesus taught on prayer, not so many steps back. So right, we say we're walking with Jesus. We're just kind of doing this dance through Luke 12. We're gonna be in Luke 13. We're just gonna kind of keep going with Jesus. And if you walk back a few steps and see what, what's Jesus been talking about, he had just taught them about prayer. He had just taught them about prayer, and, and the question is like, what did he say about prayer? What was that parable? What was that side door story about? And he said, ask and seek and knock. 
Ask your father, ask and seek and knock. Well, he did that. And that's exactly what this man is doing. It seems this man's maybe modeling some of the prayer things Jesus taught him in an attempt to have a prayer answered by Christ. And yet his prayer is immediately dismissed. Jesus discerns a wrong motive when dealing with this man. What is that? We'll get to it. The problem uh, to start with is prayer by number almost never works. A lot of us, uh, if you've grown up in a religious household or certain denominations or certain practices or certain rituals and certain religions, you kind of find yourself in a place where you've learned prayer by number, prayer by formula. There's a recipe. If you say this and then you do this, then you get this. It's vending machine sort of religion. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't really go with that. So this man was maybe with Jesus and he heard this whole prayer speech that Jesus gave, this whole instruction and teaching. And so he tries it out. He says, teacher, like, like our father, hallowed be your name. Like get a good title in there. So, hey, good teacher. Jesus turns around and Jesus said, ask and seek and knock and it will be given. So he asks, hey, can you make my brother divide the inheritance with me? And he, then what's supposed to happen, right? He goes, you just told us if we do this, then you'll give us what we ask for And yet what Jesus is is sort of telling him right away by dismissing the prayer is there are no magic words and right grammar that get us um, what we want out of God. There's no magic words, no right grammar. Prayer is heart language. If it's a language, it's heart language. And so what's behind every heart language is heart motive. You ever said the same thing in two different contexts and mean two totally different things? You say it to these people and it means one thing. You say it to those people, it means another. You say it this way and you say it this way. And the same exact words can mean different things if the motive is different, can't it? Jesus is reading motive, not rituals and rules. He's not interested in someone with the right language and the wrong agenda. And so what we see is is often when we pray, your will be done, what we're really doing is praying your will be done, but asking for ours. When you read your Bible and, and it says will, it's one of two things. It's been translated either from a word that would mean plans, your plans be done, or, or it's translated from your, uh, wait, plans, desires. Desires, it's plans or desires. Will is always plans or desires. And so what is God's will for me in this situation could be what is his plan for me or it could be what is his desire for me. And Jesus is, is essentially saying if you're praying your plans and your desires and trying to get the God stamp, that's not what I taught you. I taught you to be about the Father's will and then watch as it comes to be. So as we talk about prayer, and we're going to leave it and go back to the men, but unanswered prayer is always something I get asked about a lot. What about an unanswered prayer? What do we do when we pray and there just isn't a response? I kind of feel like this is that story a little bit. The guy has a, a, a thing he asked for. Jesus has some words to say, but he doesn't directly respond. And I think unanswered prayer sometimes, I'm not God, There's other reasons God stays silent and remains quiet when we reach out. But sometimes I think it's God allowing us to hear our prayer again. It's allowing that prayer to linger in the air long enough for us to go grab it, take it back, and look at it and assess it. Because sometimes what we do is when we say, hey, will you do this for me? And we hear nothing in response. We grab it back and we look at it. And if we judge the motive again, we go, gosh, you know, that was kind of a selfish prayer. Would you save my friend who's just so far gone? That seems like a really good God prayer. But if we judge the motive and the motive is because I have some unreconciled stuff and I really, it'd be easier for me to deal with them if they were just a Christian and not, you know, out doing their thing. 
well, that's not for God's glory. That's for my ease. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't want to do the thing, but sometimes God leaves the prayer unanswered so that we can take it back and assess the motive. Back to the brother. He's probably a younger brother because the inheritance went to the older brother. The, the older brother got the, the lion's share of the inheritance and there was different ways it got broken up in that culture, but probably a younger brother saying, hey, my older brother got the inheritance and he kind of needs to cut me in on it. There's no sense that his claim is, is not true. There's some commentaries that will say that maybe he's trying to weasel into something he doesn't deserve. There's no sense of that. Jesus doesn't call him a liar. Jesus doesn't say you're out of line. Probably there's some injustice has been done. And so Jesus is hearing that. He probably has a legitimate grievance. Jesus loves to right wrongs. He loves to bring justice where injustice has been done, right? So the guy has the formula. Ask him by the name. Ask for something justice related. That's his stated mission as the Messiah. He came and quoted Isaiah and said he's here to, to, to set the oppressed free and to rescue those who've been enchained. He, he's here for this, to make justice happen. So I'm going to say the right things and I'm going to check a box that he really likes. I'll get it. So why is he dismissive? Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, there is nothing more common among those of us who follow Jesus than using what everyone agrees is a good thing and essential to the kingdom of God to disguise our sin. There's nothing more common among us who follow Jesus than using what everyone agrees is a good thing and essential to the kingdom of God to disguise our sin. He, he actually distills that into a line I really like, the line that I, I, if you could take a line and put it in your pocket and take it with you, it's this one. Nearly all the sins we get drawn into are packaged as virtues. Nearly, nearly all the sins we get drawn into are first packaged as virtues. Like the devil doesn't waste time tempting you with evil because evil's pretty easy to spot. Rather, he hides evil in a good thing and he tempts you with the good thing and then lets the evil sort of in a counter to Jesus in parables. The evil kind of sneaks in the side door when we're taking on the good thing. Christmas is coming. Everyone loves Christmas. Christmas is the big thing. We get excited. There's presents and there's family and there's joy and there's singing and there's Christmas trees and all the things. Christmas, Christmas. Christmas is a good thing. It's objectively a good thing because what we're celebrating is the birth of our Savior. It's kind of an exciting time. Every year we get reminded that Jesus God's son came down to earth in flesh to rescue and ransom us. And it's like, wow, okay, this is cool. We get pretty excited about Christmas. There's a lot of fun that goes with it. It's great. Will you spend more time on gifts or God? Oh. So in the virtue of Jesus's birth and the celebration of that, what happens is materialism sneaks in. Really wish I got that instead of this. Or comparison sneaks in. Covetousness. They got that. I didn't get that. They did what? They went where? Wow. You're like, ah, Christmas, kind of far away. Don't feel that. I'm not feeling that. Thanksgiving, a little closer. Bring it a little closer. It's almost November. Careful. Buy your turkey now. Gratitude is a beautiful virtue. Thanksgiving, gratitude, it's a virtue. Family, we gather with family and give thanks for all of the things that we've been given. Thanksgiving, family, gratitude, these are great things. And gluttony is almost guaranteed right? Sin couched in virtue. And so while we'll be there thinking that I'm going to do the right thing, I'm going to be God's ambassador in this place, and I'm going to deal with Uncle Ned and his crazy political views while we talk about different crazy things over Thanksgiving and whatever the election does, and I'll, I'll deal with all that, and I'll be yours, Lord. And 
sneaking through the side doors, that gluttony that says, you know what, in order not to say the rude thing I'm supposed to say to that relative that always pops off around this time, I'm going to have a fourth slice of pumpkin pie because if I'm eating, I can't be saying things I shouldn't be saying. And you're like, see, I avoided sin and the gluttony meter is just going off. And you're like, well, whatever, I had to buy all new clothes, but at least I didn't make Uncle Ned mad. And, And it's just what we do. Virtue almost always is the place where evil sneaks in because it's an easy little, it's an easy trick. And so the man comes to Jesus and he goes, hey, can you help me? Check out this justice issue I have. And I think what Jesus is sort of saying, if I can put this in some modern language that's a little bit, uh, a little lower brow, let's put it on the, on the bottom shelf so we can all take it with us. Jesus is essentially saying that prayer with selfish motive is like potpourri in a porta potty. Prayer with selfish motive is potpourri in the porta potty. You can't disguise what's really going on there. All the religious language and all the flowery whatever, it doesn't really disguise what's really happening. So Jesus is looking at this guy and he goes, See, justice. And Jesus goes, Smells like greed in here, doesn't it, friends? You can spray whatever you want, buddy. We know where we are. We can't fool Jesus with religious words. We can't put sin in scriptural gift wrap and then sneak it past Jesus. Yeah, but look, I, I used some, some Bible verses. Now is it okay? And Jesus is like, no, not really. Because it's, it's driven by pride or it's driven by lust or it's driven by power. It's driven by some agenda or some motive that isn't your will be done. It's like, hey, can you hook me up here? And Jesus is sort of saying, stop it to this guy. But then if we extrapolate that and we say, hey, we're followers of him too, as he's telling his followers, this is greed on display, we have to be seeing that it's greed on display. And then we have to look at our own lives and go, where is greed on display? See, because Jesus is not only, only seeing, he's lived it. He's not speaking out of turn. In Luke 4, if you flip back a few pages, Jesus was fasting. He's in the wilderness. The devil shows up to tempt him. What does the devil do? Scriptural wrapping paper on some sin. Hey, you want to do this? Bible says. Hey, your Bible says. Hey, the scriptures say. And Jesus goes, wrong, wrong, wrong. Motive, agenda, motive, no. He used all the right terms. He used the right wrapping paper, but but Jesus wouldn't let it through. He wasn't going to be easily fooled. And so if you'll look at the parable that Jesus tells, he actually quotes Ecclesiastes in it. When the man says, once I have my bigger barn, I will eat, drink, and be merry. That's Ecclesiastes 2. He's using Solomonic texts that all of these people would have known, very familiar passage for people who are in the rabbinical way of Judaism. And he uses, uh, he quotes Solomon because he wants to point out that even when you quote the Bible, when you quote the text, it doesn't make what you're saying right agenda. It's just you putting scriptural wrapping paper on your own motives. So he looks at the man and he says, who am I to be your judge or arbiter? Which is a really funny thing because we're like, yeah, why does Jesus have to decide this? And the little, the little sneaky thing is Jesus actually was totally qualified to decide this. Like this is what rabbis do. People bring these things to rabbis and rabbis who know the scripture, who know the text, who know the law, they're able to kind of be like the small claims court and they deal with it. And so Jesus had every right to, to lean in here and make a proclamation and make the thing right. But he can't make the man's motives right, can he? He won't be roped into that story, so instead he tells his own story, which is this barn builder story. So let's go to the parable. The parable about the barn builder is about a farmer who has abundance. Abundance is great. He has so much abundance that what he's thinking of doing is tearing down his his existing barns and building bigger barns so he can put all of his abundance in them. So this is like bumper crop, great year, doing well, awesome. 
And so when you read the parable, here's what you need to know. There's nothing wrong with barns. You knew that. But you know, there's nothing wrong with, with making space. If you have a two-bedroom and you want a three-bedroom, nothing wrong. If you have, you know, a 12-inch television, you'd like to move up to the 20-inch television because you can't really see any of your shows. Okay, cool. So this isn't like a, hey, you need less and you need to be smaller. And it's not that. Nothing wrong with farming. Obviously, that's a thing. Um, no one probably thought that, but I figured I'd say it. Anti-farm sentiment is high. Everybody loves farmers. Jesus is saying something. So what is he really saying? It's not about barns. It's not about farmers. What is he saying? What he's saying is this man has been blessed with abundance. And what does he set out to do? He sets out to arrange his life to get more. Again, nothing wrong yet. He has abundance and he's arranging his life to get more abundance. Anything wrong with that? We're quick to be like, that's the sin. Nope, not yet. What is this all about? Motive. Why does he want more? So he can relax. He doesn't want more so he can bless others. He doesn't want more so he can feed those who have no food, so he has extra food, he can feed them. He doesn't want more so he can leave a legacy for generations in the future. He doesn't want more for, for anyone. He wants more so he can take a nap. And we just said that Jesus taught on prayer and the man is using it against Jesus. Ask and seek and knock, I call him teacher. And what he missed when he was learning the formula of prayer and how to get what you want from God, what he missed was the point. He, he memorized the formula, but he didn't ever read the words. Jesus said this whole thing about daily bread. Give us our daily, what, is, what does that mean? It means rely on God each and every day. He is your sustenance, he is your provision, he is all the things you need. And what this man is actually doing is saying, actually, I wanna build a barn that can hold bread for like years and then I don't have to rely on anybody. Then I can just relax. So he's not about barn building. It's not about any of that. It's about this guy's going, I don't want to have to rely on God. I want to be able to just store up for myself, take God's abundance, keep it, hoard it, and then I'm good. The farmer in the story is so busy chasing tomorrow's bread, he's lost reliance on God for today. So what I'm going to do, this is a story about greed. Jesus calls it as much. We usually think of greed in dollars and cents. I don't think greed is always about dollars and cents. Here's my new definition for greed. Greed is a desire to control something or someone as a means of protection from unknown or unexpected threats. Greed is a desire to control something or someone as a means of protection from unknown or unexpected threats. And in this, we are all barn builders. There's greed in all of us. It's not always financial. Occasionally, I'll run into a couple that'll come in for counseling and, and one of the two, will, the one partner of the other will say, you know, she won't let me go out with my friends. She won't let me go out with the guys anymore. She keeps me, she tries to, she's tying me down, man. Or, or the other will say, he won't let me do X, Y, and Z because he's so insecure. He's always worried about whatever. And what, what they're saying is, my partner's being greedy with me. They're not sharing me with anyone else. And what I, I kind of want to break free from this, but, but what's the partner doing? Desiring to control their spouse as a means of protection from unknown or unexpected threats. If I let him go out with his friends and she starts drawing all the lines as to where that could go, or if I let her go and, and, and spend that girl's weekend in Vegas, we, where, where could that go? And so instead of, uh, of dealing with the unexpected threat, we're just going to control the thing and bring it in tighter. Uh, the Enneagram is a personality assessment that's gotten pretty popular in recent years. And um, I don't know who's taken the Enneagram 
if you're online and you've taken the Enneagram, just put your number. Just put like, you know, whatever number it is, four or five. It's a one through nine. So if you put 12, you're lying and we know. Um, anybody in-house taking Enneagram? Anybody's taking this? Yeah, we got some hands. Okay, good. Um, basically, it's, it's one of these personality tests. It's, it's sort of, uh, sort of Christian-centered. I don't know how, how far to go with it. it. Like everything else, it has some flaws. But um, it's a number one through nine, and it pegs you on that place somewhere. And it's actually one of these that's kind of spooky, right, most of the time, where you go, ah, okay, well, let's see. And then you read the description, you go, dang, okay. My wife and I took it for our 15th anniversary as like our kind of bonding thing. And she took it, and I took it on the other sides of the table at the coffee shop, and then we compared what it said. And it has like, there's guides that'll say, if you're a five and you're with a two, here's what's going to happen. And it was like to the T, kind of scary. Um, it even said that the two probably had to pursue and ask out the five to make the whole thing happen because the five was never going to do it. And my wife had to pursue and ask me out because I'm an idiot. So um, all of this to say, on the one to nine, I'm a five. The common sin, every, uh, every number has a common sin associated with it. Um, so, you know, three is vanity. Five is greed. And I was like, well, I'm not greedy, so this part's wrong. I'm pretty free with finances and generosity. That's like something, that's one of our family values. We're always looking for ways to kind of disperse. So that can't be me. And what I, what I learned is when my default place in my life, when I'm not um, right with God or focused on Christ, I am greedy. I'm greedy with my time. I'm greedy with my energy. I'm greedy with my relationships. I'm greedy with my love. And, and so I'm going to tell you my greed so that maybe you can apply it to yourself. You just turn the mirror back to you later and you go, huh, I wonder what mine is. Um, man, I'm a barn builder. I'm a barn builder when it comes to relationships. My world is people. My days are people. Uh, my job is to love and serve people. And yet somewhere within me, there's this thing that wants to kind of keep it close to the vest that doesn't want to let too many people in. Doesn't want to risk in relationship. I'm a little greedy with my with myself in that way. Uh, we did a 360 evaluation some years ago at my previous church, which means everybody gets to judge you uh, anonymously, which is <laughs> maybe healthy, maybe not. And, and one of the comments on there was, uh, he's slow to warm up with others. And I was like, ooh, yeah. Like I wanted to fight it, and then when I guess that's true, why? What's wrong with it? And it, it, what, it, what the guy was saying was, you're kind of greedy with your relationship and your time and your and I thought, gosh, I never thought of that. And I had to start doing the heart work and going, what's, what's that founded in? What's the, that rooted in? And there's woundedness in me. And, and so I, I tend to control limits with those things. And I protect my heart from certain things. I don't want to get too many people in too close because, because why? Well, everybody's got a story. My story has some trauma in it. My story has some, some of those things in childhood where you, the people you love unconditionally turn out to, to leave and they walk away. And so how does this whole love thing work? If I love and then you disappear, ooh. So I learned really early that if I want to be greedy with my love, it'll protect me from unknown threats. It'll protect me from unexpected threats that if I just don't give away love, they can't walk out the door with it. And so I don't give away love real easily. I have to work on my greed. Control. I've counseled enough people to see it in the mirror with myself all the time. I'm building barns all the time. And I got to go and tear those barns down all the time. 
because I find myself building barns to hold the abundance of love I've been given and not give it away because what if somebody abuses it? To hold the abundance of grace that I've been given and not quite give it away because what if somebody tramples on it and hold the abundance of joy I've been given because what if somebody turns it around on me? What Jesus is saying to me is I am love. I bought love that you might display it richly towards others for the glory of God. That's what Jesus tells me when I'm honest, when I'm sitting with him, when I say, hey God, Jesus, I have a question. Teacher, he goes, I'm love. I am grace and I've given it to you in such abundance and richness that you have no right to build a barn and hide it from anyone else. You need to turn it loose on the world. He uses money for the rest of us because money is kind of a universal thing. We can all see it in money, but you have to apply it to yourself in every other area. And so the brother wants to share in the inheritance. No, 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 the brother is greedy and he wants a piece of the pie. And Jesus says, you're building a barn and you forgot that God built the whole thing. He's telling the the younger brother, you're so focused on your 401k that you've lost sight on the Lord. You're so busy with your rainy day fund, you forgot who sends the rain. Jesus is explaining that in building the barn and seeking the part of the inheritance, what the person is doing is actually just losing their reliance on God and forgetting that God is the source of all those things anyway. He's telling him that he's let money become his God and security. It's mismatched plans and desires. It's, it's your will or my will. Well, I use the right language. Yeah, but our desires aren't quite matching up. It's incongruent. It doesn't fit. Therefore, I'm dismissing that. For all of us, this is true. When we find ourselves building barns with whatever it is in your life, the result is that we become jealous of the people who have more of that thing than we do. We begin to covet what they have. And in the financial sense, sometimes it's an easy place to look. The people that take that vacation we can't afford or live in the house that we wish we had. Big stuff. Or little stuff. People that wear brand name clothes when we can't get them or people that buy pizza that wasn't sold in the freezer aisle of the grocery store. And if you slander Red Bear and pizza, I will come after you because that is legit pizza, okay? Classic crust or rising crust. I'll go with either. Don't slander you want to have me over for Red Baron pizza, let's make a little, okay? Red Baron, okay. Greed seeps in, in places, and we have to just be aware of it. We got to be aware of when greed starts seeping into our heart. What, what is that thing that I see on social media that I go, oh, I wish that was me. Oh, must be nice. Whenever you say must be nice, you go, oh. There's a little thing in me that covets that. We shouldn't be surprised. First commandment, last commandment. Remember this, first commandment, last commandment. Ten commandments, right? There's ten. First commandment is the one on which all the others rest. You shall have no other God before me. Okay, that one's a pretty easy one. All the other ones happen. These are things that go wrong when we have another God before God. Why did you murder? Well, your agenda kind of came before God's. Why did you steal? Why? Okay, so have no other God before me. First commandment. Last commandment, thou shalt not covet. And there's this beautiful thing that happens when you kind of close them in together. There's this beautiful thing that happens is if, if you have God as your one and only, if God is your first and your primary, then you don't want what others have. When God is your hope, you don't covet the hope of others. When God is your love, you don't covet the love of others. When God is your wealth, you don't covet the wealth of others. When God is your security, you don't covet the security of others. When God is your future, you don't covet the future of others. When God is your everything, you don't covet anything that anyone else has. But it has to be the first in order to get the last. And so put the first commandment, if you leave with nothing else, first commandment, last commandment, put them together. And when you say, what is it that I really want, Lord? What is the thing I covet? What's the thing I'm jealous of? What's the low-key envy I carry about my life? It's relationship, it's status, whatever it is. 
If God is first, you don't need that thing. And so when you feel like you need a thing, the response is to go back and figure out where God is not first. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When the Lord is leading you, you will not need a thing. And with any lesser shepherd, with any other lowercase g God of the world, with any other thing that we're chasing to be our sustenance, to be our identity, to be our provision, to be our hope, to be our joy, to be our grace, any lesser thing we chase, it has us coming at God with right angle and wrong motive. We end up scratching around life with all these grievances and with all these issues and we're looking for someone to approve us or someone to affirm us. We need someone to, to give us a few additional scraps that we can put away in our barn and yet what we recognize is our barn never fills. No matter how much you put in the barn, you never feel like it's enough. There's always someone with a bigger barn. And we'll leave that there. We'll come back to that next week. For this week, we need to know that we are wealthy. Wealthy beyond our wildest dreams. We are a people who possess deep grace and unconditional love and none of us have earned our place in the family of God and so we get to come as children receiving incredible goodness. The love and grace of God is inexhaustible and we need to hear that. The love and grace of God is inexhaustible. It means you can go to his barn as often as you need to. You can go to God's storehouse as often as you need to. You can draw from that. You can, you can withdraw from his bank account as often as you need to. And it never runs out. It's never less than full. And that is not true of everywhere else we're drawing from, is it? He has barns beyond your wildest imagination. His grace exceeds your ability to sin. Hear it. Your, your ability to sin, you can't outsin God's grace. You can't outrun God's love. You can't outrun God. And a lot of us in this, in this world, we get going so fast that we can kind of put God on the back burner. We can kind of think this God thing is cool. It's a nice accessory of life. I'm just going to kind of check in on Sunday. What we're really doing is we're just running. We're busying ourselves and distracting ourselves with other things because we're running from God because of the habit we wish we didn't have, because of the sin that we wish no one knew about, because of the past that we wish we could leave behind in a race, because of whatever it is that we're carrying in us, that whole thing we carry that says, if you only knew, that secret covetousness, that secret jealousy, whatever that is, we just begin to run from God because we have shame in our hearts and we go, gosh, I wish I could be better. I wish I could be perfect. I wish I could, and I'm not. And so God doesn't want someone like me. And so I just start running. You can't outrun God. Someone in here is running from God right now. You can't. He will catch up. He will find you no matter where you go, no matter where you hide. He will find you. He will drag you out and he will dunk you back in the grace that he offers. You cannot outrun him. You cannot outsend him. There is nothing you can do to extend yourself beyond the path of his redemption. And so stop running and turn around and say, God, what is it? Show me what it is that's broken and then show me what it is to be healed. That's what we're about. That's what this whole journey is about is recognizing that we are the, the subject of every one of these parables. He's side-dooring into your heart and mine and going, hey, hey, pastor, you're greedy with your relationships. How is that? I meet with 35 people a week. All I do is people. He goes, uh-uh. Not the evidence of your behavior. It's the motive of your heart. And I go, oh, got me again. 
All right, Lord, how do I find healing? He goes, more of me, more of me. Trust me, lean on me. Am I your security or not? Are you afraid? Am I your grace or am I not? And I gotta every day submit to that and you have to every day submit to that to say, God, what am I running from? What's the thing I'm hiding? What's the barn I'm building? Maybe you have right religious words, but your heart is cold. Maybe you have wounds you haven't addressed and it's leaving you lonely. Maybe your greed is your sin. Maybe you're running. You cannot outrun God. The shepherd, the good shepherd knows you. Jesus knows you inside and out, backwards and forwards, every day in the past and knows every step of the future. The shepherd knows you. And knowing you, the shepherd loves you. And Jesus pulls you in close and says, I love you. And when you're with me, Jesus says, when you're with me, and only when you're with me, you will finally find true satisfaction and true hope and true joy that lasts. And anytime you want to leave me and chase some other shepherd, you're going to be lacking. You're going to be wanting. You're going to, there's something not quite there. And so Jesus continually says, leave the barn, stick with the shepherd, and I'll get you through this. When you leave the barn and you stick with the shepherd, then joy can finally be yours. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I am uh, beyond grateful for challenging words and at the same time grateful that when we teeter on that edge of guilt or shame, when, when each of us in this room having our own issues and our own struggles, when we think about where we fall short, Lord, your grace will catch us. Your grace is the safety nut under our days. Your grace is everything for us. So Father, we rest on your grace. That inexhaustible storage, that inexhaustible barn of goodness and hope and joy. My prayer for us as a community, my prayer for myself, but for us as a people, is that we would be people who are generous with our lives, that we would not be building barns of our own abundance, but we would be so free with the abundance you give that it would overflow in our lives and that many would meet you, would find you, would know you, would follow you as a result of the lies that you've given us of the, of the grace and the abundance that you placed in our lives. Father, where we are not yet able to see those dark spots and those blind spots, God, would you open our eyes to that? Would you give us eyes to see as you see, and then would you give us the courage to step into that and to figure out what it means to put more of our hope in you, to put more of our security and our safety in you, to ultimately put our very lives in your hands. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his salvation that is on offer to each of us every single day. We pray in his saving name. Amen. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.